Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to, I can hold it a little longer, to, hey, great shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Crack Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. On tonight's show, you have our final episode of the deciding point of the 2023 season, our weekly breakdown of Everything that happens across the Division One college tennis universe, of course. Normally, we talk Division One women's college tennis on Tuesday nights, but here on our final show, we're going to be offering our Division One women's tennis awards from this 2023 college tennis season. What a year it was, of course, before we hand out the hardware, before we break everything down. Have to offer a massive thank you once again to to all of you in the college tennis universe, players, coaches, fans, you make it such a special experience for our Crack Rackets team to cover all the action. And I know I speak for all of us when I say we had a blast meeting so many of you on the grounds in Orlando. We had a blast speaking with so many of you throughout the course of this college tennis season. And just because it's the summer doesn't mean you can't bother us, whether it's on the DMs, in the DMs, excuse me, on social media, if you see us in person at an event continue to come say hello that said of course man am i excited for tonight's show we've got a jam-packed episode a few storylines we gotta hit on before we hand out the hardware gotta offer our final thoughts on everything that unfolded in orlando both team and individual wise we gotta give you an update on what has been dare i say a rousing round of the coaching carousel so many schools spots swapping places head coaches elevated we'll give you an update on everything's happening there of course speaking of swapping places the transfer portal it's rocking and rolling who are the biggest names that have swapped schools where are they headed we'll talk about all of that before handing out our hardware of course the typical things we want to talk mvp we want to talk freshman of the year coach of the year of course who's the gal from this 2023 season who are the programs on the rise who's on the hot seat some added categories to our list this year but of course most importantly the best news for all of you college tennis fans is the man joining me on tonight's show to help break it all down is the man who has joined me on every episode of the deciding point talking d1 women here this season of course you all know him best as the yes the returning champion of returning champions here on our Cracked Racket shows. Founder of the No Ad No Problem blog and podcast, which has been rocking and rolling over the course of the past few weeks, regardless of the start of the offseason. Of course, maybe though, most notably now, you know him as our boots on the ground, the face who was always in the stands, and the guy who was offering the best updates throughout the course of the 2023 NCAA tournament in Orlando. It's our dearest friend, John J. Parsons. Jay, hey, 
Great shot. Welcome to our final show of the year. Are you recovered, my friend? How are you doing? I would say this week, maybe we have both emerged from hibernation <laughs> after what was uh, quite a long stretch in Orlando. I know you were doing heavy duty back in Indianapolis. I was the boots on the ground. Earned some street cred, I think, being boots on the ground there through individuals. Always uh, a good time. My first time going all the way through the end of individuals this year. So it hit me harder than uh, it normally does, given it was a longer experience. But yeah, I've recovered. I've shaved. You know, I'm in a good spot now. <laughs> I'm glad you said shaved because that was a big thing for me as well. I was I went on our dear friend Gil Gross's show to talk some French Open and I texted him. I was like, dude, I haven't shaved in like 14 days. I was like, I have barely been able to eat food, yet alone summon the strength to go shave my face. And so, do you want me cleanly shaven? I was like, what do you need for the show? And he goes, oh, dealer's choice. And I was like, you want me clearly shaven? Trust me, it'll help all of us here. But yeah, I mean, I know you did a full podcast on it, reflecting on Orlando, the pros and cons of that facility on the No Ad No Problem podcast. I recommend that episode for any listener looking to dive into that topic. We won't rehash all of it here, but you were there for two weeks. You were the guy who at times was the only person on the indoors uh, uh, other than our broadcast. Talk to me about some of your reflections. Give me a synopsis of the past two weeks of No Ad No Problem podcasts. Well, the one I launched today uh, was kind of detailing my reflections on the USTA's role as a host. And ultimately, in reflecting on that, I had a pretty clear thesis, which was one, you know, college tennis is unfortunately and painfully right now a bottom tier sport in college athletics. The USTA in particular should care a lot about that. For many reasons. Unfortunately, based on their hosting abilities in 2023, it does not seem like they do. And therefore, I think we need to start rotating the NCAAs to college campuses who will see this as an exciting advertising opportunity for their school, for their program, and bring more love to college tennis in a more thoughtful and um you know, planned out way. It's a fascinating thesis and you do dive into it on the show. So no spoilers. If you want to hear more, if you want to hear John's reasoning, no ad, no problem. You can find it wherever you listen to your podcast, but let the record show. I will speak on behalf of college tennis nation, as I like to think I do from time to time here on this show. Everything you did was much appreciated. You know, we saw the rain coming on our broadcast, but you were the one who let us know 30 minute delay because of lightning or we're moving indoors. Here's your start time. And it was very much appreciated, my friend. So if it hasn't been expressed to you already on behalf of College Tennis Nation, thank you for all you do. And thank you for joining me week in, week out here on this show. It certainly made my life fun. It's made our coverage better. And of course, the reason we're able to bring you that coverage week in, week out is because of the support we get from all of you in College Tennis Nation, as well as the support we get from our dear friends at Turna and LS. Let's start with our friends at Turna. I went home for a week. The way I actually worked myself out of sickness was by getting back out on the tennis court. And honestly, it was just because it was so hot outside. I needed to dry out all the phlegm that had accumulated in my lungs. Anyways, I was schwitzing quite a bit out on court. 
And what was the only thing that made my tennis salvageable? It was the fact that our dear friends at Turna sent me a new package of Turna Tough. And I put that bad boy on my racket and somehow it never slipped out of my hands. And I got to give a shout out to Turna Tough because I sweat and it is the most durable grip you're going to find out there. More durable than the original Turner grip. Of course, they retain that iconic trademark blue color as well. And added bonus, I, it's a fan testament, I suppose. My former college roommate, Blake Ahadi, now an MBA student at Michigan. Shout out to him. He goes, yo, give me some of that Turner. He's like, I need some of that on my racket right now. It gets the job done. There's a reason everyone across the tennis universe use it. You can find it wherever you buy your tennis goods. Turn to the new Turna Tough Grip today. We appreciate all the support we've gotten from our friends at Turna over the years. Of course, we appreciate the support we get from LS as well. They've been us with us since day one of this season. And the only reason I'm not rocking my LS gear right now is because it's sitting at our washing in our washing machine here at CRHQ. It got worked. I got questions about it. Uh, there's nothing I enjoyed answering more than yes, this is LS. Yes, you can find it on the LS website. And yeah, it's not just the hoodie. It's not just the shirt. They offer so much more. We appreciate the support we get from our dear friends at LS. The least you can do is support them as well. Learn more by clicking on the link in the description to this podcast. With that said, Jay, I'm putting a deadline on us. 9.20. We have 10 minutes to get through the following headlines before we hand out some hardware here on our show. Let's start two, three weeks removed from the action. And I think this question is easier to answer on the women's side than it is on the men's. But the biggest question line is a couple of weeks removed. Did the right team win the national title here in 2023? Because sometimes you leave NCAAs feeling like that's not the case. I don't know how you can feel that way coming out of this year with North Carolina getting title number one. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is a team that could have won the title many years and you would say the right team won the title that year. And I think this was the year they get over the hump. There was immense talent on this team, so much talent that they sit, you know, former number two player in the country, Abby Forbes, in singles, and they still get the job done. You know, I think we saw late in the season that NC State's high might be at a higher peak, uh, given what they demonstrated in the ACC final, but North Carolina looked ready to win this title and win this title they did. And yeah, I, I don't, think that they were the they were no, the right team. I don't even know if you can say NC State's peak was higher because Dittman was up a set. Abrams was up a set. And Yarlagata, Tran, worked their way back. Tangillig beats Rejecki, who ends up in the NCAA semifinals in three sets. And then, you know, everything that was Scotty at four. And, you know, by the end, it just felt like whether it was Crawley, whether it was Brantmeyer at that NCAA tournament, UNC wasn't losing at two. Um yeah, they had the depth. They beat NC State in doubles. They dropped the doubles point against Texas, but come out and win four definitive straight set matches against a team that had been their nemesis the past two, you know, or last year's NCAA tournament, and certainly a nemesis more broadly from a narrative perspective. Absolutely, the right team won the tournament. Now, again, and I say this lovingly. I'm very happy NC State didn't lose to Iowa State because there was a 15-minute window where they really could have, and they didn't. And so I think mo the, my biggest takeaway, and this will be my final thought, and then we'll move on, not only did we get the right team winning, 
we got the right two teams playing in the final, and it was by far the best match of the week in Orlando, right? Like, I don't think it was close. Men's side, women's side. I think the best quality of from start to finish was UNC versus NC State in the final. Now you're shaking your head. Well, you the best quality match, maybe yes, but certainly the NC State Iowa State match, right? That best was drama the, for sure, a four-three thriller, exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, this final had everything. It wasn't a four-three, but it had all the makings of that. It could have been if you run that match, you know, ten times. So it was, it was a great match. It was a great atmosphere for a final. Uh, it certainly delivered. I think we were all satisfied with seeing those two teams face off in the final. Yeah, Smith Crawley ended the second set and the tiebreakers and everything. It was the right final. It was a gem. 4-1 in name only. The right team won. I think we got the right battle as well. Individuals, Fong Ron Tien, another freshman having success at NCAA. She goes, I think, 34-2 and overall in her freshman year. Doesn't drop a set on her way to the NCAA title. First UCLA Bruin to win since 95. So as I like to say, one Alex Gruskin since it's last happened. Did the did the right play? You know, she knocks out Sleeth in the final. God, and watching Sleeth three set her way through back and, you know, beat Rejecki indoors and just Sleeth it up all week long. I thought it was a, I mean, even with Rejecki in the semis, but Sieg in the other semis, sans Diana Schneider, which certainly looms over the event. I thought it was a really fun individual singles tournament, and I don't think the wrong player won. Like, I'm totally fine with how things ended up. I, I liked it. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a weird question. I mean, she was playing the best tennis of the players that were playing in this individual event, right? And so she won the tournament. She didn't drop a set through yeah. it. And I thought she looked fantastic in so many of her matches. <laughs> she looked great. And, you know, I think um, there were some surprising results for sure. Obviously, a disappointment for us college tennis fans that Schneider doesn't play this event. But, you know, that happens often in the NCAAs, not often that they're leaving to go play the French Open, but oftentimes you'll have top players who are not playing this event and we never asterisk the event because of that. So yeah, I mean, she played awesome in her entire run. She beat the players she needed to beat. Was it the four semifinalists you might have penciled in prior to the start of the tournament? No, but I, I thought she played excellent throughout. I agree with you. The forehand was lights out. No one could hurt her. Kari Miller goes up 4-1, and then that match was over like 30 minutes later. Um, she was awesome. And her two losses on the year were Tess Pornaclo in the dual match, NCAA tournament, excuse me, who she beats first round of NCAAs. And then her other loss is Chloe Beck on the road. No one beats Chloe back at Duke. So, like, I'm not going to knock it. I, it is a worthy. Yeah, not even Diana Schneider. Exactly. It is the resume of an NCAA champion is what I'm trying to point out. And so did UCLA have a standout 2023 season? No. Did Fang Ron Tien have an NCAA championship caliber season? Absolutely. And so I agree there on the double side. Schneider and Smith were so good at the NCAA tournament. I miss Diana Schneider more in doubles than I ever did in singles, to be honest, watching the action unfold. That said, 
given how good this Carolina team is, and, you know, again, they didn't finish the season undefeated, one loss, but they're not going to be like, oh, the undefeated Tar Heels, which just adds that extra exclamation point. For them to also win an individual title, I just think it speaks to how good this roster was this year and how special this group particularly was. And to have an all-Carolina final as well, like, I just think it was the exclamation point the program deserved. Yeah, it demonstrated the depth, and particularly to do that in doubles, where you have to field two teams, four players Who versus didn't even play singles. Who together at NCAA's, which is just yeah. I keep these are the teams that they switch going into the <laughs> yeah. NCAA team event. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it shows that they have you know just we knew this coming in, but just the tremendous talent they have on this team on this team, and uh, you know this was the Crawley Tangillig uh, duo that played two behind Scotty Brantmeyer. So yeah, uh, tremendous depth to get that individual title. I mean, now North Carolina is a double school, right? They had <laughs> Scotty and Jones in 2021. So uh, yeah, a big exclamation point for them, particularly after not getting the individuals, right? With both Brantmeyer and Crawley suffering surprising losses in the singles event. Yeah, uh, well said. I agree that that's the extra fact that's in like the the undersheet as well is that they didn't have the singles tournament they were looking for particularly Brantmeyer losing first round to Riasco how that match unfolded it was weird to see her bounce back with Scotty Scotty into another doubles final which is crazy just doesn't happen very frequently um yeah I thought it was a I thought it was a good ending I, I thought it was just a fun uh set of individual events and I thought it was a really fun d1 tournament down in Orlando even if the weather didn't always cooperate. Um, that said, again, given the time limit, I want to move on to our other headlines. Coaching carousel. Drake Bernstein taking over at Georgia. We knew that amidst the NCAA tournament, so we've talked about that one a little bit. The big news, Boomer Saya heads to Clemson. Obviously, he was the hottest name on the coaching carousel, and this was a very open secret amongst whispers when we were both down in Orlando, not even whispers. You could say it out loud and talk it and everybody be like, yeah, that's what I've heard too. It happens. That's probably the most notable hire, I would say, of the cycle. But Jay, what out there has intrigued you? What job out there still intrigues you? Well, I will say on the boomer front, I thought he laid it on really thick on your podcast with him. I mean, talking about his son's middle name is Ames and uh, he laid it on thick for sure. But um, uh, yeah, I think it's a really exciting hire. Talk about the ACC Women's Tennis Conference, right? And just how strong that is to add a new coach into the mix at a school that has historically been strong in tennis, maybe not so much in the past decade and and has the facilities now to really compete with a lot of these programs. So I think that's a very intriguing hire. A lot of the other uh, opportunities that had opened have gone to either the assistants at those schools some surprised me. I was surprised to see Missouri promote uh, Tarati from volunteer assistant in January all the way up to now being head coach in the SEC. Um, so some of these have been, I think, surprising moves. The remaining opportunities on the women's side, you have Mississippi State that's still an open SEC vacancy, which is uh, always intriguing. You have Nebraska as well that's open and they have had success within the last decade and kind of the 2013 Mary Weatherholt years. So 
those are two of the open ones on the women's side that um, we're still looking to wrap up and schools are looking to wrap these up quickly so they don't lose players to the transfer portal. They can get the coach on the road during the summer. Um, so I expect we'll see those close out pretty quickly. Yeah, I agree. The Tarati one was just a whoa sort of moment of how quickly it seemed to happen. And, you know, again, before it felt like even most schools had really gotten into their search Missouri was just ready to rock and roll and hire her. And again, a credit to her. I'm not trying to take that away, but it was just surprising how quick that went. You know, Tucker Clary, for him to be a head coach as quickly as he has now become the interim tag removed, speaks to how impressive he is, not only what he's done so far, but in the room, in the interview process, because I'll tell you what, he looks as young as he is. And so obviously he was selling the right message. And I know he had the players backing Nebraska's interesting. Mississippi State, I agree, two most interesting openings. I think my favorite hiring is, and I'm going to butcher her last name, Shelly Jowden. Did I say it right? I hope I did. Jowden uh, down at Kentucky. Um, she was over at James Madison before. She's had success in a couple different places. That's an unconventional hire. That's a swing. And I just... I like that swing, right? Because she's not someone who played at Kentucky. Did she play at Kentucky? Am I, am I wrong here? No, I don't think she played at Kentucky. Yeah, I, th- I was going to say, I think I, she definitely played. I want to say it was Alabama, if my memory serves me correct. Nevertheless. She definitely um, spent time coaching at Alabama. Oh, yeah. Uh, point is, though. I like it. Like, I just I like I, I like the 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 process. I like the hire. Uh, yeah. I, did you call it unconventional? Or maybe the most conventional and set the others have been so quick. Yeah, well, I mean, I thought you were going to refer to coming from, you know, a mid-major school into Power Five. I actually think that's the blueprint that a lot of schools are going to be looking to follow. You look at the success of Coach Earnshaw at NC State coming from D2. You look at um, Audra Cohen at Oklahoma coming from a non-Power Five. I think actually you're seeing some sort of a track record for head coaches at non-Power 5 schools coming to be head coaches at Power 5 schools, having more success than those coaches that are just being promoted as assistant. Maybe not more, but at least some notable examples. And so I think you are starting to look, see schools look for coaches that are proving themselves at the head coach level, um, but maybe not Power 5, get the call up to Power 5. I think that's a great blueprint, and I, I hope we see more of it. So you know what? That's exactly the point is that it felt notable that Kentucky said, we like this blueprint. We're going to try this as well. We're not just going to yeah. hire our assistant. We're going to go this route, which has had success elsewhere. Elsewhere is that grabbing a foothold in this coaching search process. I mean, I'll tell you what, you look at the men's side, the next wave of assistant hirings will be telling as well as there are still plenty of openings left on the carousel in that note. And I'm sure we'll talk about it later this summer as well. Last thing, there are still names available, but there have been some notable transfers. Sasnaskaya, Kieran, a lot of fun names, Jay. What struck you most pressingly? Where are they all headed? Well, I mean, Oklahoma has quite the crop coming in, you know, you know, from Baylor from Kentucky. So they have two transfers coming in. Arushia and and, and Sherbina. Sherbina, thank you. Yeah, from Baylor. So, I mean, both of those players played number one at Kentucky and Baylor. So coming into Oklahoma, I mean, those caught my attention. You mentioned Sasnaskaya heading from Old Dominion to Texas. And 
dare I say, replacing Nicole Kieran, uh, who was the Big 12 player of the year, transferring out of Texas to Texas A&M. That was announced recently. That was a surprise. Uh, what other ones have really caught my eye? Those are the you big have a few ones. transfers out from. Yeah, those are the big ones. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I those are the ones that have stuck out to me as well. Like, again, Assassin's Sky going to Texas. It's another good one for Howard, who I would say is a mixed bag of results. Patrick Leva's success, obviously, Zane didn't wasn't with the team for the full season. Goes there. I mean, for AM, you get Ewing last offseason. Now you bring in Kieran, and now you look at that core, and you're like, you know, Stoyana, Kieran, Kupris, Smetanikov, Morales, freshman or you know whomever they have on their bench working their way up now you've really got yourself a nucleus yeah i wonder if we might still see a piece or two uh change ways before the start of the next dual match season but i i think those are the most notable thus far and you mentioned oklahoma as well yes bringing in a couple of pieces also and then the other two teams i would mention are lsu and oklahoma state now you can Oh, we didn't even talk about Oklahoma State. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Look at this. I'm bringing something up for you, Jay, to take over. Well, well, these have broke Mm -hmm. like uh, while I was in Florida. Yeah. No, like while I was in Florida, from from Iowa State and then Komar from LSU. I mean, those are, are huge names. Uh, to go to Oklahoma State. And that's a school that's really building for 2024 as they host NCAAs. It's an elite eight, right? They are very much looking to be in that mix come final eight. So those were massive additions for them. They also bring in Carrington from LSU. So almost like a package deal, two players from LSU. Those are really big ones. Um, LSU has had a few come in, uh, but yeah, Oklahoma State, Oklahoma State, Oklahoma, Texas, and Texas A&M are like the big four schools right now that have uh, big-name transfers. It's more like LSU's had action both ways. Get players in, players out for Coach Taylor Fogelman as he tries to – because they have brought in some players particularly of late. Yes, they have. I I forget who I just saw Yeah, I'm blanking on the name too. Yeah, the other day. But all of these schools have had players out as well. I mean, we're talking about Kieran going to A&M. She – leaves yeah, Texas, sure. right? Texas brings in Sasnaskaya. Uh Oklahoma doesn't have anyone transferring out. They have players leaving. Oklahoma State has Wolfburg transferring out. So like we're in a world now where it's like one in, one out. Um, you know, it's pretty I will say place. for Oklahoma State, they had six players last year who would be excellent at the three through six positions. They now bring in a top two in Komar and Kajiru. And it's just like that is a team now that absolutely can make the final site in Oklahoma State come next season. And so we'll talk about them a little bit more later. We'll talk more about the transfers as they unfold this summer. We went a little overtime on the storylines, but there have been some good ones since the ending of the season. So we just wanted to catch all of you college tennis fans up on where everything stands. That said, it's time to put a finishing bow on this 2023 season. It's time to hand out some awards. Who were your top performers? What were the standout things we'll take away from the year? And before we get into the awards, just quickly, 
Here's what we'll be offering, John J. Parsons and myself. We'll give our MVP as well as the gal. Those are two different things. We'll explain what we mean as we go. We'll offer our ideal lineup, one through six singles, one through three doubles. Talk about what team had the best doubles point. Talk freshman of the year, coach of the year, highest ups, uh, pro upside, most improved program and player. Who leaves the year most disappointed? any program on the hot seat and program to watch as well. So we got fun awards ahead, folks. Stick with us. Maybe now's the time. Hit pause, grab a snack, come back to us. If you're watching the podcast, if you're watching the live show, we're ready to rock and roll here, Jay. Let's get right into our awards. Let's talk about the big one. Most valuable player point, however you want to look at it, MVP of the 2023 season. Let's just tell me your thinking. Tell me your pick. Yeah. Well, I, the funny thing about these awards and whenever I get criteria from you, it's yeah. missing criteria. It's missing definition. So all I got was MVP. And <laughs> because we are also giving a the gal award, uh, I focus my MVP on the NCAA tournament as an embodiment of the 2023 season. And so for that reason, I went with NC State's Diana Schneider. I incorporated both her incredible performance on the singles court where she was hardly dropping games, as well as her doubles performance with Alana Smith. She was the most outstanding player and she is my most valuable player. So that was my pick as well. And when I look at this MVP award, which again, I, this is how I, li- I like hearing your explanation of how you view the MVP, because I think everyone views it a little bit differently. You can't just have a firm set of criteria for what these awards are going to look like. I would never restrain you with such criteria, John J. Parsons, because your brain deserves no, no restrictions. No, it is loose. It is yeah, loose here. On exactly. Practice. When I think MVP, who's putting points on the board? Who is the player I am most certain I'm going to get a point or if you want to include doubles, a point and a half from every match that is played out there. Part of that is results driven. I have a bunch of records open in front of me. If you want to go through that, part of that is to your point at the NCAA tournament. Who is the player that's coming through over and over again for their team now? That is more heavily weighted when we get to the gal category, which we will talk about the criteria for when we get there. I had a bunch of candidates. I'm going to run through my MVPs, Jay. You tell me if they belong on the short list or not. And I have, let's see, two, four, six, eight, 10, 11 candidates. Rapid fire. Don't worry. We'll go from bottom to top of the list. All right. I'll say if they would be in my top three. Okay. Meg Kowalski. No. Really good. She won like 14 in a row though to end the year. Belongs. I just, I put it there because it was a point. You're just at the end of the year. Meg Kowalski's putting a point on the board. Mary Stoyana. Uh, Yes. Belongs in the conversation. One loss in singles. I think one loss in doubles as well. Angelica Blake. Yeah, she does. If there was a first, I mean, well, we have a first team all, all 2023 college tennis team. It's, I was going to say first team, all NBA, but we actually have that. I mean, she didn't lose at three singles, period. And her and uh, Blokina were really good in doubles come the end of the year. Yep. I'll keep rapid firing, I promise. Ackley? Uh, no. Yes, but her team wasn't good enough. That's the problem. Sieg? 
Uh, Yes. I think same criteria as Ackley. This is the yes, but your team's not good enough section. Ackley, Sieg, and then Fangran Tien. Same deal. Yes, but your team's not good enough. Sure. All right. Now we get into the actual short list. These are the five names that I was seriously weighing. Chloe back at five, just on principle. Like, she has to be on the short list every year she's in college tennis. Brodus at four. Yeah, I mean, just the the she didn't lose at all uh, yeah. in the dual season and um, number one in doubles, nineteen and, and, doubles. and five. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, so she's my four. And the reason why you can never write off Pepperdine in the national conversation all year long is it's well they have Brodus, so it's a point on the board, and like you got to get to four, and they have one. Um, all right. I was gonna say you write them off because we make them play indoors every year, but yeah, that's funny. I'm gonna erase this name. She was supposed to be in the gal and not the MVP, but half vote to Alana Smith, who should be lower down the list, but deserves a cup. We'll get to her when we talk about the gal. My last two candidates, it comes down to Crawley and Schneider, and mm-hmm. Schneider was just better down the season's home stretch. Schneider was better at the one spot. If you saw her 0-0 Yepafanova in the way that she did or 0-1, whatever it was, you're just like... Yeah, she got a game. Yeah, you're know. just like... Yeah, you're just like, that player is better than everyone else. She dropped like one game against Iowa State between singles and doubles. It was a joke. And so I just think she has to be the MVP. That's my ballot, though. I think the clear top four would be Schneider, Crawley, Brodus, Beck. I think that's right. Yeah. Right. For MVP. There's your ballot, folks. I feel pretty good about that ballot, too. I feel like historically that will age well. Like people will look and they'll see my, oh, good player, but team not good enough category. And they'll be like, oh, TN and Ackley were all really good ads there. Um, yeah, again, absolutely. I, I went deep on my ballot this year. I treated this as though it's I mean, I'll publish it if everyone wants to see it. I, <laughs> if that's the move, I'm happy to publish my ballot. Will you publish yours as well? Well, I'm curious to see how much Westhoff includes in these graphics. I'll, I'm how happy to include my – I had honorable mentions. I had whole, whole sorts of things well, then, in what I sent him, so we'll see. Is there any MVP honorable mentions I didn't mention that's on your list? No, I only had I only had Schneider listed here. Because you think it's that clear cut? Yeah, I also – again, because we have the gal coming up, I really focus on NCAA tournament. And, I mean, I've been attending this tournament since – 2010 i've never been like oh wow this player is on a different level than every other player it was very very clear and that's the last note i want to make west off i'm about to swear get ready to make a note we had a fuck 100 player in college tennis this season she's got to walk away with the mvp the press she brought in off the court as well it's always now oh it's college tennis is diana schneider and it's just like well don't forget about all the other ones but I mean, I get angry I, because I, that's why I do this job. But, yeah, it was a joke. Like, it was – here's the biggest compliment I can make is Brad Meyer played awesome in the NCAA final. Like, that's the sort of match you walk off the court. I think I said this in our recap pod where typically they hand you a paycheck and they're like, congrats, you won $50,000 for losing in the second round of this slam to Diana Schneider. But it was just like, but you lost to Schneider and that was going to happen. And – by the end of the tournament, she was as good as advertised. And so I think just has to get the MVP award. That said, MVP is not the gal. The gal is a symbolic figurehead here in college tennis and here on our Crack Racket show. And it's an arbitrary category. 
I always like to just ask you, Jay, when I ask you about the gal, as we head to that category next, we agree Schneider, a unanimous MVP here on this show. How do you think of the gal? To me, it is someone who has demonstrated excellence in the sport of tennis (laughs) through the duration of the academic season. Someone whose name is often synonymous with the insert academic calendar year here, college tennis season. That is who I nominate for the gal. I agree. I think it's the player who defines the year, who, whether it be fall, spring, across the board, their success define the broader storyline that you take away from that fall, from that spring, and more broadly from that season. I think it's someone who acts as a de facto face of college tennis throughout the course of the year, someone you hear Jay and I refer to on each and every show. And, you know, again, I could give you my sh- uh, <clears throat> do you want my shortlist or do you want the let's, let's go shortlist first. You tell me if this player belongs on the gal shortlist and then we can get the, to the picks. It's a very similar okay. name to the MVPs. And by the way, we can yeah. go over the records if people want, <laughs> but um, I'll get back to them in a second. Schneider's on the gal list. I think she has to belong, yep. even though she's a freshman, just because the press post Australian. Yeah, has yep. to be on this list. I think Alana Smith has to be on this list as well because she's sort of a symbolic figurehead from a player perspective of what has been one of the biggest storylines of the past half decade, which is just the fact that NC State's gone from new blood to blue blood. And her coming back from injury, it just felt like they had all the pieces aligned. You saw that ACC title run. It just feels like she's the one who's kind of the glue that brings it all together. That's a very compelling argument. Thank you. I, I worked hard on this. I care about this award show. This is this is yeah. my go-to, as you <laughs> yeah, know. Yeah, she, was, she was, was not on my list. That's a very compelling argument. The five-year run she has been on has parallel path with the ascent of the NC State program. I think narratively makes a lot of sense. She's never going to win this award, but she belongs on the ballot, is my argument. Fiona Crawley's going to either be the choice or the second place finisher, so I'm not going to do her case again, but I think it's pretty clear. All-American champ, one seed in singles, beat Smith in the final, NCAA doubles champion, and ITA fall match doubles finalist, need I say more. Um, so her, I think Scotty has to be on this list for all the reasons you talk about for Smith, but just UNC specific. You know, she's the one hasn't lost at a national indoors. She's the one, two NCAA doubles finals appearances, a doubles title. She's the one who wins that breaker of a first set where it just felt like, oh my God, UNC's got this. And it just feels like Scotty's the through line from teams past to present. And I think she has to be on this list for all the same Smith reasons plus that. Yeah, I I, I mean, I don't, I think it, I think in this I think that's fair. Okay. Yeah. I'll take it. Um yeah, I you know, I mean I think again narratively for for this UNC program it helps that Scotty has been, you know, the the senior leader on that team that has has done this and been in on the front lines for so long. Yeah, I I don't think that the Scotty case is as strong as the Alana Smith case and they're kind of vying for like that same angle, but that's fair. Last three, again, Brodus didn't lose. Beck lost once. Um, and then last but certainly not least, Blake again. 
didn't lose three, played one doubles, like same reason for the MVP. All right, Jay, I think those are the case. Did I miss anyone or do you just want to give me your winner? No, this is a generous list. This is a long <laughs> ballot for what is a very short list. The gal of the 2023 season is North Carolina's Fiona Crawley. Fiona Crawley, as you mentioned, you know, completely swept the fall season. She only lost two dual matches during the spring season. And she won the NCAA doubles title after suffering sort of a surprising uh, NCAA singles result. There was one tournament that she didn't win, right? And that was the NCAA singles event. She wins the team. She wins the doubles. You know, I mean, she has been consistently the best player this past season. That's that is the the reason that she's she's the gal. I would say a few knocks against the the nomination here would be the fact that she was moved down to number two for the team event and the fact that she didn't win or at least make it farther in the NCAA singles event. But throughout this season, we've been talking about Crawley. Um, you know, Schneider lost more dual matches than Crawley did this season. So, um, you know, Crawley has been an excellent figurehead for college tennis. She has felt like she, she and that Riley Tran class have like ushered in a new era to North Carolina. They were freshmen in that 2021 season when North Carolina returns all the fifth years, can't get it done. And it feels like this, that freshman class at the time with Crawley, with Tran kind of were a breath of fresh, if you will, into this North Carolina program that ultimately in their junior season, get it done. 19 and one in tournament play, 27 and two in dual match play, 46 and three overall in singles. She's the NCAA doubles champion. She's 121 and 10 through three years of singles play in her career. That's the gal. Like, all right. I always say I'm I'm honest with all of you podcast listeners. I got the opportunity to spend some time with North Carolina following their victory in the title. And let's just say it was expressed to me that my fondness for Fiona's tennis is very much evident, and UNC is well aware of it. And so I'm not going to give the full Fiona case, but you made it. That's the gal. There's not a question. This is the player. If Carol, the bigger story, the biggest story, the only story coming out of the 2024 college tennis season would probably be if UNC doesn't win the NCAA title. And it's for all the reasons that you just mentioned, and Crawley has been instrumental in building all of it. So, yeah, unanimous again. That's the gal here in 2023. All right, let's get to the first team, all division one women's college tennis lineup. Again, one, two, three, four, five, six singles, one, two, three doubles. Let's just fire it out one by one. We'll, we'll alternate. I think we can do that right West off here on our graphic graphics wise. I think we can go one by one. If not, you can just show it all who, oh, it's all or none. All right, let's just go all then number one singles. Jay, who you got and why? Uh, Diana Schneider, her level in the NCAA tournament was unmatched. Absolutely number one pick here. I went back. Chloe back. I went Chloe back because Beck, who, by the way, Duke, not NC State, obviously apologies for that on the graphic. Um, one loss, one loss in all of dual match play. She beat Schneider at home. Yes, it was indoors. I just needed to get Chloe back onto a, onto a team and onto a graphic and onto something from this award season just to remind uh, remind everyone you look for Chloe Beck. And, you know, we mentioned all the uh, 
We mentioned all the success for Fiona Crawley thus far in her career, back 107 and 25, 70 and 9 in dual match play. If Chloe backs my one singles, I know at worst she's losing 7 6 in the third. Like, I'm going back. You just nominated Schneider as her MVP. I know, but I like to be weird. Schneider's still on the ballot. Like, she's still going to be a first-team selection. Don't you worry. And by the way, my considerations were Beck, Schneider, Tien, Sieg, Ackley, Stoyana. I went Chloe Beck. She belongs on a list. All right, two. Who'd you go with? Well, Fiona Crawley was a slam dunk the moment they moved her down to two. She was never going to lose at two against anyone. So I now I'm undefeated at one and two against anyone I play. Yeah, I went Crawley or Brantmeyer. I don't really care who it is. Carolina's not losing at that position. Um, Pepperdine's two. Chen, Brodus were both really good. Or Czar and Brodus, really, because that's who was there for more time. Vidmanova deserves a shout. You know, uh, Obi deserves a shout. Donna Guzman had a really good season. So did Alana Smith. But, yeah, you got to go UNC two here. Three position. Interesting. You go Rejecki over Angelica Blake. Make the case. Well, they didn't finish that match. Um, and I thought that, you know, Rejecki was not playing well in the team event. I mean, Rejecki did not play well in doubles. She didn't play well against Tangillig uh, in the final. And she, the level that I was expecting to see from Rejecki is what I saw in the individuals. This three line, I think, is a deep, uh, there are a lot of choices here, whether you have Angelica Blake, Carson Tangillig, you know, you have Mel Riasco. There's a lot of options here at the three position. Uh, but I went with Rejecki. I went Blake because she was undefeated. Now, Brodus was also undefeated, but Blake beat Brodus in the NCAA individual. So I went Blake over Brodus. You mentioned Rejecki, yep. Zainalova, Fliegner, mm-hmm. Fenning. They yeah. all had Riasco. They all had really good years at the three spot. You're right. It's absolutely loaded. Three's the position. All right. We have our fir- or our second agreement. Scotty at four. She didn't play a ton of matches there, but when she did, she didn't lose. Case in point. Ren Shelley, NCAA final. Yeah, and for me, I mean, Scotty played all three matches in Orlando in, in NCAAs, and she was clutch for them. Um, you know, she either didn't lose or she won. So um, that was a pretty good slate for her. And yeah, I mean, she, the experience that she had down at four, hard to beat. JC Goldsmith would have been an option here. Obviously, she loses her match to Blokina in three at the NCAA tournament, but she was excellent all year long. This season's a month longer. Maybe Pachkaleva has to be the pick. I also have, because they played a bunch of different players there, but Iowa State and UVA were really good at four. So therefore, whomever it was on any given day, give them a shout. But has to be Scotty. I agree. That's the pick at four. Five, I, I, I say Tran. It's a figurehead. Give me the UNC, whomever. You know, Yarlagata beating... I think it was Kowalski at that five spot at the indoors was the pick that gave me that UNC final edge there. But you go Valencia shoe. That's not a bad pick. Make the case. Yeah, I don't have her exact record. Maybe you do, but she was excellent down the home stretch, particularly in Pac 12s and in NCAAs. She, you know, she hardly she hardly lost. I don't think she did lose in Pac 12s or NCAAs. She got incredible wins over, you know, Shelly Bresniak of Ohio State. She also got the win over Oklahoma State. I think her getting off the court against Smetnikoff against Texas AM. I think that might have been the clincher. So I thought she looked really strong down the home stretch. And I didn't go with 
Blake at three, and I thought Stanford deserved uh, a shout-out here given their run in the NCAAs. 16-6 overall with Shu. Not a bad pick at all. Nikki Radelik was really good at five for Pepperdine. She was often that fourth point that they needed, so a shout-out to her. I gave her a thought. Shu a thought. Again, uh, Abrams, when she was good, she was really good for NC State. Texas, UVA were good at five. Kowalski, so good at five down yeah, the season. Kowalski, home stretch, yeah. but. Why did UNC win? Because their depth was better than everyone else. And so, again, you look at my all-tournament, I have them at five, uh, all-team selection. I think you have to have UNC at four, five, and six. I think that tells the story is they had seven players who were seven of the 50 best players in the country, and they didn't lose because of it. So I go Yarlagata at six. You go Dittman. If she wins that match in the final, I probably have to pick her because God was her level so impressive down the season's home stretch. But I did the UNC four, five, six for the narrative is that's what separated them from everyone else. Make the case for Dittman. Well, Dittman was, you know, the calculus for NC State going into NCAAs is we're going to go up 2-0 on you in about 45 minutes. And that you're going to feel a lot of pressure. And Dittman was the point on the board for this team that made it you know, was that third point in the quarterfinals and the semifinals, and particularly in the semifinals against Stanford, when she put that point on the board over Sarah Choi to go 3-0, the walls closed in on Stanford, and the pressure that she put on every other Stanford player was too much to overcome. I think the flip side is that she felt that pressure in that final. I thought she was the better player against Annika Yarlagata. I would choose her as my six. Yeah, uh, it's not a... It's a very fair argument, and I will say I had Dittman, obviously, on my honorable mention. Campana, Choi, Gigi Grant had a really good year at six when she stepped into that role fully for Georgia. I'll tell you what. I had Gala Mesa-Chirito written down on my ballot at one point. 7-0 at the sixth spot. I've never seen her lose a match. She needed to win. I wanted to try to find a way to get a Michigan representative because I do think they've had that good of a year, but again... Why is my singles ballot so UNC heavy? A&M at the national indoors. Texas at NCAAs. And then once they got the doubles point up on NC State, that NCAA final, if like they were going to find three every time, and when they needed to find four on all but one occasion, they were able to do it. Florida in the round of 16 as well. I think they lost a doubles point to Old Dominion, if memory is serving me correct, also in this NCAA tournament. Or if they didn't lose it, it was a sloppy one. Um they just had, they were always able to find four. And so they deserve four points on the all singles team. That said, you ready to move on to doubles? Yeah. All right. Let's, uh, I like it. Then let's move on to that number one doubles position. Who you got and why? Uh, this would be Alana Smith and Diana Schneider. Yeah, this isn't even a debate. I have Smith and Schneider as well at my number one doubles position now. You know, Brodus and Chen, Beck and Mora, Beck and anyone. Blake and Blokina. Blokina, yeah. Brandstein and Stoyana, if they would have stayed healthy all season long, they all belong in that conversation, but it's just got to be Smith and Schneider. If you watch the NCAA tournament, there's no doubt. Yeah, I mean, their level was so high uh, throughout, and that was one of the reasons that, you know, again, that's why Diana Schneider is the MVP for me, just given her impact in both singles and doubles. Yeah, I think that's fair. Two doubles? So <laughs> I am going to go with a pair that only played together for the NCAA tournament, but that is Elizabeth Scotty and uh, Carson Tangillig. I thought that they looked excellent in NCAAs. 
And if you don't want to go with them, give me the NCAA doubles champion, Crawley and Tangillig, who played the majority of the season at number two, slot in UNC there at number two doubles. Both fair choices. I'm going to go Cooper Stoyana. 12 and one overall. It just doesn't feel right to have Mary Stoyana not on this list. And the totality of what she did between one doubles and two doubles, she gets an honorary spot just because of it. And so I'm throwing her at two with Cooper's because they win the match against Tennessee. They win the match against Stanford. They won when they needed to win that freshman sophomore duo. And so they're a team absolutely to watch come next season as well. But yeah, you make a really strong argument. I mean, UNC has to be on the list. Miller and Rejecki have to be on the list, even if they didn't play particularly well at the NCAA tournament. I have no qualms with your pick for two doubles. You want to give me your three? So my three is Valencia Shu and Connie Ma. I think that they played, they were a, rev- a revelation for Stanford throughout the season uh, and started to play their best tennis down the home stretch, got tripped up in the NCAA tournament. But, you know, both of them were playing so well, um, you know, for the majority of the season, they would be my three. I went Brantmeier Tran for all the reasons you said about the NCAA tournament stuff. Like I just watched them play and I, I just feel like that pairing is very, very good. Now I think they lost to Texas at the NCAA tournament, oh, yeah. but I, I don't know. I, I just wanted to get a UNC team in. And so this is where I threw in Brant. <laughs> so you training. go with the team that didn't make the NCAA finals. Yeah. You had two <laughs> well, choices, have... but you chose another team. Got it. I have okay. the finalist in Brant Meyer. <laughs> um, but I, I did enough of UNC stuff in the singles. I mean, they needed a doubles team as well, but I think Schneider Smith are the clear one. I really wanted to work Stoyana in, and I felt like I could cheat by doing so with her and Cooper set too. Yeah, I don't feel great about my number three double selection because, you know, Iowa State, Oklahoma, Duke. Yeah, Iowa State probably deserves a shout in in doubles. Yeah, that somewhere on the roster or somewhere in the lineup. But I went Brant Meyer Tran. Those are your 2023 all lineup teams, your first or your first team selections, I suppose, all lineup here at Cracked Rackets. We continue to move on. And again, we can rapid fire, I suppose, through some of these now a little bit more quickly. Best doubles point is where I want to go next, just to build off of that uh, one, two, and three all tournament team. Who's your best doubles point of the year? Because I cheated. I'm just warning you. I think I went with North Carolina here. I think just because they, to me, beating NC State in the final is what clinched it. And having two finalists in the NCAA tournament, you know, is enough to get it done. And they are definitely a better doubles point than AM. So I I win this battle for sure, particularly after Brandstein uh departed with injury. Well, so this isn't written on the ballot because it was too long for the graphic. Let the record show NC State, UNC, Duke, Michigan, Pepperdine, AM, all my finalists. I went AM, but let the record show on my ballot it says Texas AM parentheses with Carson Brandstein. Because I was there at the indoors. (laughs) And that's the best doubles point I saw from anyone all year is what they did to UNC in that semifinal. And I just need something on my award ballot when I'm telling the story of this season. I need something that reminds me of how good that A&M team looked at the national indoors. And it was how thoroughly they beat UNC in the doubles point. We were just like, whoa, because this team is good enough to find three singles victories against anyone. And if they're winning doubles this fluidly, like 
it is now a three horse race for the NCAA tournament title instead of the two horse race. It ultimately ended up being I'm going a and M with Brandstein. I cheated, but I warned you I cheated here on this point. <laughs> There's some hidden agendas here on the Alex Gruskin <laughs> ballot. We got to weave some players in. We got to cheat to, you know, get some nominees. We want to re- reflect in two years time when looking back on the ballot, a lot of hidden agendas here. Uh, but I mean, no, you're right that that doubles point was jaw droppingly good tennis. Uh, and so certainly if we're talking about moments to remember in the 2023 season, that is certainly a moment. Freshman of the year. I think this one we can move on to. It has to be Fang Ran Tien. Um, she won the NCAA singles title. She went 34 and 2 since the start of January. I know we're both going to agree. Sir, can I just run you through my list of the best freshmen this season? You tell me if they belong on this list or not. Uh, no, I'm going to run you through my list because I did yes. have some honorable mentions on here. Uh, so first off, I have Maddie Sieg of USC. She makes the singles and doubles semifinals. She's the only player to do that for either the men or the women. Of course, you have Schneider on this list, although on pure resume alone, like she wouldn't make this list. You also have Reese Brantmeyer of North Carolina. That is my short list of freshman of the year who else do you have who are we generously adding to this list well that's the top four and then there's a there's a gap now i think five has to be christina gomez alonso at arkansas who had a really good year in the top two spots all season long so i think she would be the fifth name on my ballot fair uh, yes, but I we're also not. Incl- I think like Komar would be above. Well, so uh, Gomez I have Komar Alonso. and Celia Belmore as sort ofs because it was like, yeah, they're freshmen, but like one's a redshirt freshman. Belmore just wasn't eligible last year, but she was on campus. So I have sort ofs for both of them. Okay. Okay. The other one because they like, were on campus last season. Is yeah, why so they're sort like of. You're, you're a it. freshman, but you're not really a freshman. Um, okay. Is the, I'm just curious on the men's side. Is that how we're treating Ethan Quinn as sort of the fact that people call Ethan Quinn a freshman infuriates me because it's like, he's not, he's a red shirt freshman. So yes, but he, he yeah, but, but he, well, I actually disagree with that because he graduated high school early. Yeah. But to he join was on Georgia. campus. Yeah, exactly. So he was there. Hmm. Just because he's not playing doesn't mean he wasn't practicing, getting used to college life, et cetera. Like that makes a huge difference. And so to answer your question is yes, every red shirt or, you know, like Antoine Kornachovink will be a big sort of when we come to the freshman of the year on the men's side. Last three names quickly. Mia Kupras, good year. Not freshman of the year, Absolutely. but a good year. Annabelle yep. Shue, really good year, just too injured to qualify. Yeah, I mean, a, a, a what-if type year. Yeah. I forgot Lily Jones, who belongs, good year. Bridget Stammel's the last name, where it's just like, hey, Vanderbilt had a weird season, but Stammel was good. Yeah, but this is not the good freshman of the year award. Yeah. By the way, I forgot about Rachel Galis at Florida, who is also really good. She belongs on the really good list. <laughs> she belongs on the good freshman of the year, which we are not giving an award for. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the honorable mentions, as I like to call them. All right, we'll move on. 
Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Coach of the Year. Again. Actually, you know what? This one's going to be intriguing. I turn to you. What would you think about it? Who'd you pick? Well, look, I mean, when you talk about coaching story of the year, team of the year, arguably, it's Iowa State and the, you know, Cinderella run that they have been on. And, you know, in some ways, calling it a Cinderella story, I think, undermines the steady rise that we've seen of this Iowa State program over the five-ish years that Boomer Sia had been at the helm of this program. So a, a program has been in the bottom of the pack every year of the Big 12. They go on first, you know, round of 16 in program history, first Elite Eight in program history, where they absolutely test top-tier NC State. What Boomer has done with that program is phenomenal. I hope we continue to see Iowa State uh, be a factor in the big, big 12, even after he leaves for Clemson. And we already talked about the, at the top, I'm excited to see what he can do with an expanded, uh, resources uh, at his disposal. Has to be the winner of this list. First national indoor final 16, first national indoor semifinal, first round of 16 NCAs, first quarterfinal NCAAs. Boomer Sai is the pick. Now, obviously Calbus, Earnshaw, Joffe to turn around the roster the way he did. Honestly, Mark Weaver to lose Carson Brandstein in February and still go through the SEC regular season undefeated and make the quarterfinals tip of the cap there. You know, I think the other ones you have to give a shout out to Caroline Lilly at Auburn. They're rolling. We'll talk about them in a little bit. Allison Ojeda, the job she did at Tennessee this year, they had a great season and obviously Kelsey McKenna at Wisconsin as well. But Boomer not, is not the in theory success it was just straight up success started at the kickoff weekend they sustained it the whole year through i agree clear-cut pick for coach of the year now we move into some arbitrary categories here we go highest pro upside that's where we're going next does schneider count because she probably has to be the award winner right Who, who'd you go with here yeah i went with schneider i mean it feels yeah. weird to say that she has the pro upside when she is in the pros, but I mean, gosh, yeah. I, 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 there is not another player. I mean, she is still at now she's 19, but she's of age of all of these players and no other player has the weapons that she has the, you know, the, the forehand. I mean, honestly, her defense against a lot of these players, the way she can turn it into offense, you know, it, it's, she's truly a, a very special player. And probably the most special player I've seen in college tennis. And that includes a lot of very good. It includes Jen Brady. It includes Danielle Collins, players who have gone on to Grand Slam semifinals. I'm not saying Schneider will be able to get there, but relative to the field in college tennis, she is far and away heads and shoulders above uh, the rest of her competition. At least she was in Orlando. Her forehand's the best shot I've ever seen in the women's college game, just in person yeah. from any player. And the crazy thing is her serve's not good yet. Like, it's just going to get so much better because foundationally the pieces are there. She just doesn't execute it at a high enough first serve percentage yet. And she moves well. 
She sees the court well. She's fearless. She just plays at her pace. She's top 100 for a reason. And God, was it a pleasure to watch her play and then get to see players with weapons like Brodus, who has to be on the short list, Brantmeyer, Tien, Vidmanova, and Sieg because of their size and just the totality of things they can do. Players with the weapons like a Rejecki or, you know, again, Stoyano. You watch Karolina Mukova at the French Open. You're like, is that Mary Stoyana? She made it to Paris. That's great. But yeah, Shiner was the first since what? Simon tweeted out 83 to go from NCAAs to winning a first round match at the French. She's the pick. Has to be the pick. And so with that in mind, we move on to the most improved program, most improved player. Let's start on the player side of things. Who's your most improved in 2023? It's a good question. My most improved player was Amelia Rejecki of NC State. To think about where she was at this time last year playing, you know, in the bottom of the lineup, basically, for NC State to go to be an NCAA single semifinalist, the weapons that she has. I mean, she's college tennis Sabalenka. And it was exciting to see her hit the stride in the NCAA individual tournament. I love that comparison. Yeah, she's what made it real. It's that it's not just Schneider and Smith. It's Schneider, Smith, Rejecki, Renchelli, who beat Navarro last year, is now your four. Abrams, Dittman. It's just like that three spots, the hard one to fill because to be a lead at the top three, it's just a really difficult thing to do. And because Rejecki took that step forward, NC State really was. Now, there are a bunch of threes. I think Fliegner. I think Emma Jackson both belong on this list. Stoyana going from good to great and making that elite leap. She belongs on this. Obi, I think Bilchev, I think a couple of Buckeyes in Ratliff and Brisniak belong on the list as well. The other, my second place finisher for this award was Caroline Ansari, who like, I just wish we could do something about her first three rounds at the NCAA tournament to memorialize them somehow to fight off what five match points, whatever it was to get through those first two, just like you just knew you were going to a third with her. And then what she beat care. I forget what it was. Not Carolee. Um, anyways, Lexa Noel. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. That's exactly who it was. Thank you. Um, but rejecting, she lost weapons, to Carolee. Like, yeah, you, that's what it was. Um, uh, but you watch Rejecki's weapons and you're just like, if NC State sustains this next season, it's because of how much better Rejecki has gotten. And you're like, yeah, but she can go up to that number one spot because she has the weapons and she has the mental wherewithal to play at her speed, regardless of what the opponent's doing that you need to have at one. And to see that a year later from not that she was bad in 2022, but she certainly wasn't this. I, I just I agree. I think she has to be the pick here for most improved. Our ballots look awfully similar, which is. Perhaps a testament to us doing a show together all year long. Did I miss any shortlist most improved players? I think you listed a lot of good ones, but I mean, her ascent from you know middle to bottom of the lineup all the way up to an elite player in college tennis, not even just elite at the three position, but what we saw her do take out the gal Fiona Crawley in the NCAAs. I mean, she deserves to be on this list. And look, I mean, she is. British and she, what her serve can do on the grass. I expect to see some good results from her this summer. And I think she'll probably take another leap, another year of developing those weapons. I mean, she's going to be a very, very dangerous player next year. Yeah, I agree. And it's going to be fun to watch her uh, make that progression as well. All right. Team side. I think it has to be Iowa state, obviously. So let's go through just the short lists instead. 
because I imagine we both have the Cyclones, all their program firsts. Do you have a short list or do you want me to go through mine? Uh, why don't we go through yours? Okay. Michigan. I'll, okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they were a close second for me. NC State. Um, the same NC State that made the semifinals in 2021. Yeah, the but the hardest, the, the hardest leap is to get to the final and make that final push. And they made it again. And so, again, they didn't win it, but I think they have to be on this list. It's because they made another push here this year. Okay. Um, Tennessee. Yes. Tennessee, I feel like, is undervalued on the ranking side of things. I don't know where they finished last year, but, like, the jump that they made is more than whatever jump they made on the rankings, for sure. couldn't agree with you more. Wisconsin. Mm. Yeah, this is not really. Kansas. No. Kansas, no. San Diego? Um, I would go Washington over some of these other schools you're mentioning, uh, just because they did have some sustained uh, you know, results in the first 75% of the season. Last one's SMU. SMU is just really solid. Yeah, and I mean, they had, they ended the season very strong. Yeah, so they belong there. But I agree. I think it goes Iowa State, Michigan, Tennessee would be the top three of my ballot. Yep, I agree. All right. Now we go to the flip side of things. We've talked half glass half full. Let's go glass half empty. Who's leaving the year most disappointed? I had two tiers of disappointment, whether it's immediate disappointment or big picture disappointment. Let's just start. Big picture, number one on your list, Jay. Who is it and why? Well, for me, it's Texas A&M. And I think that we talked about that indoor final against North Carolina. I think we all left that match. Semi-final, thank you. It it was the final in (laughs) uh, for all intents and purposes. uh, We all left that match thinking, wow, A&M can be on the tier of North Carolina, particularly as we go outdoors. I'm sure they left feeling that way as well. So to have the you know, an injury to Carson Brandstein. I mean, it's always going to feel like this season that could have been. And I think particularly on the heels of 2022, where they felt like we only lost two matches. Both of them were indoors. Like we felt like we left stuff on the table last year to do that again this year in 2023 for different reasons, right? Things that are outside of your control. I don't know if that makes it better or worse, but it certainly doesn't help. Um, And I feel like they will, be disappointed in the results uh, of the past two years. I think that's what makes it hard. I have four teams in this category of top tier disappointment. NC State, because you're so close, because you came, you know, you had the Tar Heels when you played them in the ACC tournament, just because to come one match short, that's the most disappointment you can feel. So they have to be in this tier. A&M, same deal. To go on this two-year run and not make it past the quarterfinals, you play this two-year run, a hundred times they make it past the quarterfinals in at least 50 of the scenarios once same deal for Pepperdine. They haven't lost an NCAA tournament match outside in two years and they've had the teams. It's just for one reason or another, something hasn't clicked, but number one on this list has to be Duke because Duke had the team and they lost second round to UCLA. Like that was That's the most surprising result of the entire 2023 NCAA tournament. I think they leave the year most disappointed. 
I still think AM is a lot more disappointed. Duke was never going to win this event. And Duke wasn't even a top two team in their own conference this year. So uh, how yeah, disappointed the top can two you teams be? In their conference were the top two teams. Exactly. So they weren't winning this event. Now, would but they it have beat felt NC State, better? didn't they? If my memory serves me correct. Yeah, indoors in, uh, you yeah, know. So I'm saying like you they, can make an argument if you're on Duke's campus. Sorry I, for cutting you off, but that you are as good as those other teams. Well, that's a false argument. They weren't. And <laughs> and so I think it's like it's disappointing that they become the first team in history to lose in a regional round. Right. When we play the super regionals like that's unfortunate. I, I think it's a harder pill for A&M to swallow the results of this season than it is for Duke. Yeah. Um, all right. I'm going to rapid fire through the rest of my disappointments very quickly here. And you just tell me disappointment. Yes or no. Does that work for you? Sure. Oklahoma round of 16. Uh, uh, it's kind of lukewarm. I mean, yeah, it's a disappointment after making the final, but they ended pretty strong. So I, I think agree. they feel okay about that. Context of the season, not a disappointment. Expectations going in disappointment. Miami. This is, I mean, Miami does this every year. So this is like par for the course for Miami. Okay. USC. Yeah. I I think, again, this is a very similar season to 2022 where expectations are high, talent is high, and they don't deliver. I think it's a disappointment for sure. I agree. Michigan, just because of how that match against Georgia ended. I mean, no. five two at two doubles, <laughs> losing all these first sets. Where I like, God, was that George? They left some meat on the bone of this twenty twenty three season. Yeah, but someone once said on this podcast, you have to lose that match to win that <laughs> match. And uh, I mean, I, this was a phenomenal season for Michigan, record setting year. Uh, they're bringing you know all of those players back. And there's no disappointment. Uh, the guy who said that sounds handsome. Um, UCLA. Yeah, overall, absolutely. I mean, they kind of salvage it towards the end with the one win, I guess, against Duke. And it really helps to have Fungra and Tian essentially like save the season because that's like such an amazing accomplishment. Second player in UCLA history to do it first since 1995. So like that feels great. Um, But yeah, it's it's a tough, another tough year for UCLA. I agree. Cal, last one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. And maybe Vanderbilt, given their start to the year as well. But speaking of those sorts of schools, all right, 2023 is in the rearview mirror award-wise. Is any program on the hot seat entering 2024, Jay? How did you consider this question, and who were who were the names that you came up with? Well, I came up with a lot of names, and uh, both women and men, but we're focused on the women. I mean, the criteria for this is if I was the AD at this school, would I make a call to this coach to say, like, you got to turn around in 2024? Otherwise, I'm looking elsewhere. Yeah, I, I that think that was pretty much my criteria. Or it's that again, the talent you've had the past few. Yeah, I mean, for me, I don't know if I'd go that extreme. It's the talent hasn't matched the results. For me, that's as simple as it is, is this program has too much talent to be where they are uh, over the past few years. Do you want my short list and you can just tell me hot seat or not? 
Yeah, but I do think that that's a different criteria, right? Okay. Uh, because there are a lot of programs that we might believe are underperforming with the talent they have, but and like injuries, for that athletic department, like you're like, oh, this is okay, actually. But yeah, so it's, I think we might have different shortlists. So I'm curious to hear yours. Okay. Do you want to alternate names? And you just, or you just tell me if they're on your okay. shortlist or not. And then at the end, okay. if I've left any off, you get I'll there. I'll give you. Yep. Sure. I think the Southern California team's Big Ten shift looming have to be on there. And I think they're the top two names. I think USC, UCLA are the two programs right now. Everyone's watching. Neither's made the quarterfinal since UCLA did it in 2021. Um, and again, Matty Sieg was the only player in singles and doubles. Fangran Tien won the damn thing. The talent is there for each of these programs. Now, again, injuries, COVID stuff. There's a bunch of different reasons why these past two years haven't broken correctly for these two programs. But with the Big Ten shift looming, those are the two I'm watching most closely, Jay. Yeah, I mean, what do they care about the Big Ten shift? It's not like they're going to a women's well, tennis powerhouse it's, conference. It's, it's the money it's, that it's all going to start coming in. Yeah, I would say it's more just about the pedigree of these programs relative to women's tennis history. And these are schools that have won NCAA titles, right, have brought in that level of athletic pedigree to the school. They're looking to these programs to continue to do that, whether they're in the Pac-12 or the Big Ten or not. Uh, and these programs haven't, you know, built up, you know, to that pedigree in a few years. Well, where I disagree, disagree is the wrong word. I would build off of that. Why I think the Big Ten shift matters is that these programs do have pedigree and that now they're going to have mm -hmm. money as well because the UCLA ha as athletic department has not been in the best financial shape for about a decade now. USC asked them what having Lincoln Riley back on campus has already meant for the entire athletic department. When football eats well, everyone eats well. You have enough money now to where if you're those two programs, you say, wait. We are USC and UCLA tennis, and we haven't made a quarterfinal in how many years? Like, let's make a coaching change because we can afford to make a coaching change now. And by the way, I'm not saying Coach Swain's on the hot seat because look at the talent that she keeps bringing in. Clearly, she is selling the program. It just hasn't clicked. It, it just like, again, these past two years for UCLA, whether it's injuries, canceled matches, whatever it is. They're the two I'm watching most closely in 2024 because the bounce back just has to happen soon. Yeah, and I think you also saw Stanford have their bounce back this year. Yeah. And so I think the, the leash becomes a little tighter to say, like, it was tough with COVID. It absolutely was. And now Stanford's bounced back and Stanford's looking even better for next year. So, you know, where do we st stack up against that? That is sort of the, you know, perennial benchmark. And right now finishing, you know, 20s, 30s, that's not where they need to be. Yeah, I have three more uh, on my list. If you want, do you okay, want to go to I, I'll I'll add one from yeah. mine just because it's in the same vein. But Cal, I yeah, think Cal on my is list as well in this same category of schools that have been perennially strong in women's tennis and have really fallen off since COVID. And you know, for the, all the same reasons you just mentioned, now Cal is not going to the Big Ten. However. Look, this is a, an, a, an athletic program that has valued tennis for many years, and they're not producing the results that they're used to producing. Yeah, I, I think that's completely fair. I do think that is one of, uh, again, uh, and they've had the talent. Like, Wiersholm's there. El Sol is there. It's just Giovara's there. 
it's just been weird. I, I think Cal has to belong on this list. I got two more programs. You want to hear mine or you want to give me some more of your names? Yeah, give me another one. I have Miami because you say it's there every year. I know Paige just got her contract renewed for, I believe, two more years. But mm-hmm. I don't know how this team didn't make like, I don't know. Like, I just, I don't know, Jay. I, I just feel like they should be better than they have to not. I mean, the Pepperdine matchup in 2022 was brutal. To lose to Auburn, to lose to Iowa State, again, two losses that aged well, big picture, but there were two losses at home in the two national tournaments of the year for Miami. That just can't happen. Yeah, I mean, there's been no real improvement in this Miami program in a decade, right? They're sort of like your perennial round of 16 team. Maybe one or two years they'll crack into the Elite Eight, but like that's it. But that's when? the ceiling. When's the last time that happened? Yeah, Not it's this been, decade. Yeah, I know it's been a very long. It's been maybe the 2010, 2011 years, but um, it's been a long time, right? So, like, they've just totally plateaued as a program. And um, there's no reason for that given their location and the conference that they're in, right? Relative to women's tennis. I mean, they're a total non factor, not non factor, but the, you know, these North Carolina schools have all, you know, usurped them. Yeah, they beat NC State at home this year, and they can't make it out of the round of third. It just, it's weird. I don't know. I, they're a team I'm watching closely. My last one's Vanderbilt because just the the ebbs and flows of this season. Like, there just has to be a better middle ground than what has been a really weird two-year stretch. And I, I love the coaching staff there. I love Aliki Subanos, love Haley. They've been far too kind to us here at Cracked Rackets. They should be, uh, they know, they'd be the first to say it. It's just been a weird two-year stretch. They're one I'm watching headed into next season. Yeah, and they're, yeah, I've, they're absolutely on the list for sure. Uh, two others that I have are both Big 12 schools. Uh, the first is Baylor, who has fallen off from where they were in the early 2010s uh, and certainly given the rise that the Baylor men had gone back on uh, to make the NCAA final there's no reason why that Baylor program and to see two big 12 schools in the NCAA final last year and for Baylor not to be part of it I think that that's something that's harder to explain given the resources that they have there um, at Baylor and then the second school is also in the big 12 and it's TCU. I think when you talk about hot seat programs, you look at programs that have a very strong either men's or women's program, but the other one isn't clicking to me. That's a red flag because clearly same a coach, the same school, same resources, same location, same recruiting pitch is getting it done and you're not. And so what coach Roditi has done there, it's just vaulted the TCU program to be number one in the country the past two years and the TCU women's team to be a punching bag in the big 12. I mean, there's a big imbalance there. Um, so that would be on my short list. Yeah, I think that's completely fair with that. Then let's move to our final question here. It's our last show of the year. So we went a little over time. Program to watch. Who is your program to watch as we move towards 2023? Because, and maybe not towards 2025, we can watch that as well. But as we look towards the programs here in 2023, uh, towards 2024, excuse me, there are a lot of good candidates. You go with UNC Charlotte. I love the pick. Make the case. I did. You know, this was a shortlist school for me on most improved. I mean, to see the, 
you know, records that they've been shattering this year. We've talked about Iowa State having a lot of milestones. This program, Charlotte has had a lot of milestones, whether it's their highest ranked wins, their highest ranked victory, getting, you know, to the NCAA tournament, you know, for the first time, what Coach Davison there has done there has been really impressive. And I think given the fertile ground of North Carolina, for me, it makes a lot of sense to see this UNC Charlotte team. I wanted to go with a non power five team that I thought could kind of break in to the top 32, top 25. And they've been knocking on that ceiling this year. And so I think as you look ahead to next year of like a sleeper pick for teams that can break into the top 25 that don't come in with the you know resources of a power five, I, I would uh, have UNC Charlotte as my pick. It's a great pick. I love the reasoning. I go Auburn because I think they might go from tier three or two, bottom of two to tier one next year. I mean, everyone's back. They have all Americans in Ansari and Arsenault back. Ovunk back healthy. Bennett, Carnicella, Okatoye, all a year more experienced. And then Adeline Flax back as well. So everyone's back for Auburn next season. Is Flack back? I think she is. I think everyone's back. I'm, I'm pretty sure. Wow. Now, I'm not, I'm not a thousand percent, but I'm pretty sure everyone's back. Well, That's yeah, team. I mean, yeah, Auburn was I have uh, UNC short Charlotte list. and Give then short on list. short list. Well, it stopped at Auburn. <laughs> so okay. uh, my two were uh, UNC Charlotte and Auburn. We did it earlier talking transfers, Oklahoma State. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it feels tough. I feel like that's a school they're they've been in the conversation, you know, over the last few years. They're gonna make a jump. If if they don't make a jump, right, then that's a, a situation where talent is not uh meeting expectations because the talent is really loaded on that roster. Last one, Florida. I think Florida's gonna be um, good next year. Well, I would watch the ranking for sure. Um <laughs> I don't know what direction it's going to go. I mean, Florida is a program. We talked about Miami. Florida's had much more recent success than Miami, but they've been, you know, teetering on the what's kind of going on here for the last few years um, and has not made the jump into elite. So that's the jump they would need to make to watch. I don't see it happening next year. And they bring back everyone pretty much. And I think they bring in another, they bring in Lopez, right? Cavia Lopez is going there, Mm -hmm. I believe. And so, yep. yep. It's an interesting team. It's just uh, they're one I'm watching next season because obviously Coach Brian Shelton stepping down. Yeah, Roland's the most tenured coach maybe in the SEC now with Jeff stepping down as well. And so, mm. yeah, you wonder that's the next big domino perhaps to fall. But, yeah, it, it's going to be a really fun, I, I would say, more than anything else, a really fun off season. Plenty of storylines to follow. Anything we didn't cover today? that you've got on your mind before we wrap today's show, any other things that, you know, you are looking most forward to throughout this summer? Well, I'm really excited to, you know, I, we should say I'm excited to see the ATP accelerator program and the challenge and the challenger wildcards that the men get super unfortunate that there was nothing for 
the women, despite that kind of being a dangling carrot throughout the season. But I'm always excited to follow a lot of the pro results of the top collegians and see how they do throughout not only the country, but the world as they kind of go and travel. Looking forward to the fall setup. Again, this is the last fall that we have prior to the NCAAs in the fall. So we should be getting more information about what that fall looks like, what the qualification process is looking like. If we don't get that information, that's a big concern, a big red flag for 2024. So I think there's a lot to look forward to. Um, yeah. All right. Well, there it is, folks. That's what you have to look forward to this offseason. Of course, we will be sure to have John J. Parsons on at least once a month to update you on everything happening as it relates, not just to the college world, but perhaps it'll be college in the pros, whatever it may be. Jay, you make our coverage better. It was such a privilege always to have you this entire season here as part of our Cracked Rackets team. And as always, don't be a stranger. It is a pleasure to have you here. What a season. Deciding points in the book. Uh, Again, I'm going to get emotional here, but a shout out to you as always. A shout out to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, back producing here tonight. That's how you know it's a full-fledged show uh, on the ones and twos. It's made everything possible all season long. Of course, a shout out as well to our dear friends at Turna LS for their support this year. Of course, we do have one more deciding point episode, I suppose, as we'll run all of this back. For the men's award show, John J. Parsons will be joining me there as well. Jay, any final thoughts or can you save them till then? No, I'll, I'll save the parting thoughts until then. I guess I have a few more days where you still respond to my text. And then it really goes AWOL through the months of the summer. Uh, and then I get that, you know, fateful text sometime in late September, October-ish, maybe. Yeah, it's um, usually no, right around October 6th or 8th because you've texted me for my birthday. And so I'm like, all right, I'll respond to this <laughs> one. And then I'll ask the question. But no. It is always a pleasure. John J. Parsons, appreciate having you. And for your efforts, the efforts of our super producer, Daniel Westoff, the efforts of our friends at Turner and LS, and from everyone here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Jay, what do we tell our listeners? Hey, great shot. And we will see you all for our men's award show. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.